Father, it seems that so many will not recognize the birth of your son, the celebration that we that we have. Let that not be said among us. May Christmas not be simply a holiday where we visit, exchange gifts. Lord, let it be something more, an understanding of your Son, Jesus Christ. Hark the herald angels sing, glory, glory to the newborn King. May we sing that song as well. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So when I was uh, in elementary school, we had a little rejoinder. I'm sure that all of you did as well, at least those of a certain age, when somebody would inadvertently make a rhyme. Uh, you might answer, he's a poet and doesn't know it. But his feet show it because they're Longfellows, right? Am I the only one? I saw a couple of people. Is this not a thing, right? Their feet are Longfellows. You know, I didn't know anything about Longfellow other than a, a few things that he had done. The uh, Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, um, the Song of Hiawatha and Evangeline, a few things like that. He was also known for something else, and that was a really scraggledy beard. I mean, some guys have beards that are like, yeah, right, that's, but he had this scraggledy old beard. He actually had a pretty sad life. I don't know if you're aware of it or not. Uh, he dearly loved his wife, Frances, but on July the 9th, 1861, she was, she had clipped some locks of hair from their children and she had put them in an envelope and uh, Henry was taking a nap and she was using wax to seal the envelopes uh, closed and the candle fell in her lap. It caught her dress on fire and her screams woke Longfellow from his nap and he sprinted over and the first thing he did was he threw a rug over her but that didn't stop the flames. And so he smothered the flames with his own body and Francis was very badly burned. The doctor came, but uh, it was too late. Didn't matter if he'd have been there at the time. Wouldn't have been able to save her life. Longfellow was burned so badly that he couldn't uh, attend the funeral. That old scraggledy beard that he wore, it's because he couldn't shave anymore because of the burns on his face. And he never got over losing Francis. He never remarried. And his grief was so strong that he begged his friends, it was only grief. He was not crazy. Don't commit him to an asylum. Francis died just two months after the Civil War began. And now two years later, on Christmas Day, he sat with a letter in his hand telling him that just two weeks before, his son had been severely wounded in a battle 
the battle of mine run. They didn't know if he would live or not. Consumed with grief and consumed with despair, thinking about his wife and his son, what would he do? Thankfully, he picked up a pen and not a gun, and he wrote these words that day. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, swinging on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. He wasn't talking only about the war. He was trying to find some way to overcome the despair in his own life. And he did not ignore the world or the pain in it simply because it was Christmas Day. And in despair I bowed my head. So we understand that he despaired, but we also understand something else, and that's where he turned. I, every time I find a word like this, I, my love for words just compels me to, to look at it. And I never learned Latin, one of my great regrets. But in Latin, the words D, the words, the prefix, It means to remove. So you can defund something, right? You remove the money, okay? You can decouple something. You can remove the truck from the trailer. You can decaffeinate something. Which, by the way, is not coffee. Decaffeinated coffee is not coffee. (laughs) And then you have this uh, other part of it, uh, sperare which is the Latin word for hope. So disparare, despair, means to remove hope. Wadsworth had been claimed classically. He was fluent in Latin by the time he was 14 years old. When he chose that word, it wasn't simply, it was, but it wasn't simply for rhythm. It wasn't simply for rhyme. It's because he knew exactly what it meant. It was rather descriptive of him. He had lost hope. 
But then he reflected as the bells continued to ring and a new thought entered his mind. You have to understand, this is in real time. He sat down with this son's letter in front of him or a letter from the army, thinking about his wife, and this is what he wrote. He went through a process, and at the end of it, he came to God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. As he wrote, hope began to enter his heart, and it entered his heart at one point. The understanding that God is on his throne. God rules, God reigns, God will make it right. Sounds a little bit like Job, doesn't it? That's the journey that Job took. That's the journey that Wadsworth took. Maybe the solution lies there. Some of us in this room have come close to despair. Some maybe have found themselves in despair, wondering aloud about what has been perhaps the use of one's life. C.S. Lewis mused in the book, A Grief Observed, Meanwhile, Where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you or an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, Desperare. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You might as well turn away. The more emphatic the silence will become, the longer you wait. There are no lights in the window. But at the end of the matter, C.S. Lewis, in the same book, in his conclusions, wrote this, that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. What most people don't know is that's quote of a quote. You may not know that the grief observed the publisher T.S. Eliot was on the board of that company. T.S. Eliot wrote of that about the darkest days of World War II. But he himself was quoting another book, an older book from the 15th century, spoken by a young girl as she lay dying of plague. When people are in despair... When there is no peace, no hope, no joy, the mind must turn to God who makes all things well. So, I mean, we're faced with a real question, and that is how do we rejoice when we see nothing to be joyful about? Where do we find joy when joy is is fleeting? In fact, not just fleeting, it seems downright elusive. How do we, in our darkest moments, find light? 
I could have chosen many passages for this message because it's more topical than anything else, but I chose the richness of Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we will look at a few verses there. 1 through 14. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, you're going to find, as often you do, the context strange for such a statement. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Obviously, time will only permit a summary of this text, but I think that it will be a summary that will aid us in being able to determine the source of our joy. Verse 1, Paul calls on the believers to this, Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians, if you know anything about the book of Philippians, if you've only casually heard about the book of Philippians, you know that it would be subtitled uh, Joy. Rejoice is mentioned six times in this tiny letter. And Paul knew that we needed to have this word, this this challenge, because it's easy for us to become discouraged. It's easy for us to allow circumstances in life to turn us away. I mean, and he offers a solution, but it's in an, ina- an enigmatic way. That's not a hard word to say any other time. <laughs> Paul was in prison. He was in prison writing to a free people to rejoice. I mean, Paul had learned that wonderfully valuable lesson 
that we must be able to rejoice in the Lord no matter what our outward circumstances are. And in a little history in verses 2 and 3, what's going on here is that as Paul had traveled, there were men who followed him. And what they did was they would tell his converts, and this is really difficult because these were the people that had trusted in Christ through his teaching and, and through his preaching and through his ministry. And he would say, you know what? It's not enough. I mean, Paul, he puts you on the right track. He got you. He got you facing the right way, but you're not. Yeah. You got to add some works to it. You got to do something. You know, yeah, Paul's, you know, he's good, but it's not complete. Here, we're going to give you the rest of it. And especially what you need is to be circumcised if you're a male. And so they did. And Paul, he called them dogs. Men who do evil, mutilators of the flesh. It not only considered them not of God, but also dangerous. Paul said, do not follow them, follow me. Essentially, that's the message of 4 through 14. In those verses, we learn some really fascinating things about Paul. I mean, a superficial reading might lead you to believe that the apostle was, was boasting, but nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, what Paul was doing was emphasizing to, as strongly as they could that he didn't place any confidence at all in those things. They meant nothing to him. I mean, Paul considered, verse 7, it tells us he considered loss, those things as loss for the sake of Christ. When you look at this word consider, it has this notion of deeply reflecting upon something. And after a deep reflection and thought and careful thinking about this, he decided that all of his gains were rubbish. Dung is what the word means. Not garbage that you throw out in the trash. No, no, no. He is going, he's trying to say something as base as he possibly can. All of that stuff that makes me a hero in your eyes is nothing but dung. It's garbage. It's rubbish. Nothing matters except for this one thing, having Christ as Savior and Lord. The righteousness which saves is in Christ, and that's what Paul rested in in his faith. In verses 10 and 11, Paul offers a really open and honest confession because he's the one who led them to Christ. So he's not talking about coming to Christ here when he says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. He's talking about something else. He says the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection. The power which brought Christ from the dead and now lives in us as believers. He longed also to share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, he understood quite clearly that the sufferings of Christ were not Christ's sufferings on the cross. He, those could not be shared. But he wanted to participate with Christ in his suffering for the sake of righteousness, which is what he was doing. 
which is what he was doing whether he wanted to or not. As we look through there, we see that Paul was a spiritual giant, and he wanted us to know something. He had not gained his goals. He had not yet gained them. Even though he pursued Christ-likeness with the enthusiasm and the persistence of an Olympic runner, which is this is an allusion to that, the Olympic Games with the running and the pursuit, he, he was not there yet. But he refused to allow the things, the things that so easily beset us, as we're told in another place, right? And what might that might be? That might be your birth, <laughs> might be your heritage. That might be your education. That might be the amount of money in your bank or the amount of property that you own or the amount of people that you control at work or whatever it might be. He says, no, put all that. That's none of that's going to control me. And so now we gain an understanding of why Paul began with the command to rejoice. Why? Because our salvation does not come from us, but him. Our righteousness does not come from us, but him. Our part in the resurrection does not come from us, but him. The shorter Westminster Catechism of 1648 begins with a question and an answer. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Do you realize that you and I were built for joy? Built for it. Created as beings that are filled with joy continually. And yet, if we make that our goal, if we make that our choice, if we make that our desire in terms of an active pursuit, you will not find it. I think that Longfellow looked not for joy, but looked for something more. I think that Lewis did not look for joy. He was not looking for joy, I guarantee you. He was in so much pain. For him, joy was not possible. And yet, I believe that both ended with a measure of joy. Because joy is not found, well, think of it this way. If you've ever despaired, did you find joy? You may have found a momentary, brief freedom from pain, which you may have even labeled happiness, based on something that you did or someone was able to do for you. But you didn't find joy. No. There's only one way to find joy. And that's in your surrender to and pursuit of Christ. And that's why I'm asking you to consider another way. And that other way is to find joy by not seeking it. 
Don't, don't, don't look for it. It is a byproduct. It is something else, as Galatians tells us. It's, it's a fruit. I attended uh, officer training school in 1997. That's how I began my Air Force career. At that time, our only car, I don't know how we ended up with, with this. I mean, I do, but I don't know how it became our only car. <laughs> and it was a 1956 Buick. Beautiful car. But really, you're going to drive it across the United States? Yeah, so loaded up. Drove from Washington State down to uh, Montgomery, Alabama for my, my training. And, you know, and on the drive, just trying to get my mind ready for this training. Because I'd been through Army basic training, and I figured, well, this is going to be the same thing. And I'm going, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that. But anyway, oh, by the way, I, I did my Army basic training. It was like 48 years ago next month. Is that scary? That's scary for me. Uh, just think in two years I can go over there and I can watch people graduate 50 years after I graduated. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for life and, and health. But, wow. Uh, much to my relief, the, the military training was, was not like the more uh, rigorous training than, than I had. It was, it was far more academic. Uh, and so I, had, I did everything, you know. I, I took the tests. I obeyed the orders. I got to the business of pursuing officership. I wanted to be a good officer. That was my goal. So after a couple of months, uh, and just before the, the, the final uh, test, the, my commanding officer called me in, and, and he, he says to me, Captain Tillery, you're on the bubble for DG. And I, I sort of knew what on the bubble meant. I had no idea what DG meant. So I didn't know if I was in trouble or if this was something good. Usually if you're on the bubble, this is not a good thing. Anyway, I said, uh, what do you mean, sir? And he said, well, if you do, if you do well on the last test, uh, you may well be a distinguished graduate or perhaps the distinguished graduate. Okay, now I knew what DG stood for, distinguished graduate. I said, I said, thank you, sir. You can count on me to do my best. And I completed OTS, and I was the distinguished graduate. But my point is not that, as Paul would say. My point is that what did I do differently after I talked to my CO than I had done before? Nothing. I was already in pursuit of officership when this came to me simply because of that pursuit. What I didn't realize then was that put me on an academic track in the Air Force so that I was able to do a number of things. I did a year internship with the uh, Uniform Health Services Consortium in Clinical Pastoral Education. I was able to get a Master of Sacred Theology from Boston University, a Doctor of Ministry from OST, the Oblate School of Theology. And all of those opportunities were actually given to me if I would take them simply because I pursued officership in my first two months in the Air Force. That's a fact. I didn't know anything about any of this, nor did I care. I just wanted to be a good officer. 
All of those things ensued from that. So in to ensue, okay, what does that mean? In, uh, that means uh, upon, okay? It's, it's kind of like a, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. And and ensue, it comes from this uh, Latin word, uh, sequa, which we get our word sequence or sequential. It means upon, uh, after, that which comes after as a result of something else. And so what that means is it's something that happens or occurs as the consequence of what you're already doing. So two weeks ago, I mentioned this, and it's something I want everybody to ensure understands. In the Bible, we're commanded to rejoice. We're commanded to do something. We're to rejoice. And while it is assumed that you're filled with joy as you do this something, we're told in Galatians, as I mentioned before, that joy is a gift of the Spirit. Joy is a condition. It's not something you do. You don't do joy. It's something you experience. It's something that you have as a result of your pursuit of God. Your relationship with Christ, not joy. The world seems a little chaotic and scary today. This has been especially true in 2020. It's as if every day has been a reflection of Don McLean's song, Bye Bye Miss American Pie, where he wrote, but February made me Shiver with every paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. Everywhere we turn, it seems there's bad news on the doorstep. It can feel like there's nowhere to find joy. It's easy to worry about what tomorrow will bring and what it'll look like. Lewis quoted Eliot, who quoted a poor dying girl, That all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. How do we know this? We've looked at it before. Revelation 19.6 tells us about God's reign. Handel wrote his work, the Messiah, based on this text. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Wadsworth, Lewis, Eliot, Julian, you, I, We have joy because God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. He is the Lord God Almighty. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and all manner of things shall be well. Pam is going to sing for us now. And as she does, I want you to think about those things that nip at your soul that cause you to despair and then let those things go in the light of God's surpassing greatness and be filled with joy.
God wants to give you joy. You were made for joy. The only way that you can find joy is to put your eyes, to put your mind on him who loves you, who saved you. When we put our minds on other things, our joy is stolen, it's taken. Consequence of the fall. But when we look to him, our Lord, our Savior, he will give us joy. You woke up this morning with breath in your lungs and also with a God who loves you more than anyone else, more than, in fact, you can comprehend. And you have another day, this day, to make a difference in the world, to pursue Christ to find joy in him, and then to live that out with others. Father, it's only because you rule. It is only because you reign. It is only because you love us. It is only because your son came to live and to die for us. In short, it is only because of you and your actions that we have anything at all. May we bow the knee to you, to you only, and count everything else. And I would add, in addition to the things that Paul thought were good, I would add the bad. Put it all away. Put it all aside, push it away, so that we might pursue one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ, to your glory, in your name, amen.